0: I invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 19. One more, one more week in Genesis before a little break, and we'll come back to it in January. Uh, Genesis chapter 19, and we'll come to the end of uh, the, the chapter, uh, verses 30 to 38. So let me go ahead and read that. Holy Scripture says, Now Lot went up out of Zoar and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zoar. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters. And the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is not a man on earth to come in to us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine. We will lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father. He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. The next day, the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go in and lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also. And the younger arose and lay with him, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. This is the word of God. And it is for our good. Let's pray. Father, uh, we thank you for giving us your holy word for our instruction, sanctification, and direction in our lives. Uh, Father, I pray that, that you would shine the light of your truth upon our hearts, that we would Understand what you intend for us to understand through this passage. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This is, this is not your ordinary uh, text for Advent, an Advent Sunday, or for any Sunday uh, for that matter. It, it, it's really important, you know, when, when I say, Holy Scripture says... Or after I read the scriptures that I say, this is the word of God and it is for our good. We never, ne- never want that to become mere rote, you know, uh, an empty ritual. Um, but we, we really believe that, that God saw fit to put everything he did into his words so that all of it, As Paul wrote in 2 Timothy, all scripture is God breathed, and all of it is profitable for our growth in Christ. And so, passages like this are really interesting, not only because of some of the bizarre activities that are recounted in them, but if if you you also notice, uh, you might ask, what's the Lord doing in this passage? Well, there's there's no reference to the Lord in this passage, is there? There there was in there was in chapter 18, the Lord visited Abraham. There was in chapter 19, the Lord earlier in chapter 19, the Lord visited Sodom and brought destruction upon the city. Here in these in these nine verses, there's there's no reference to what the Lord is doing. Uh, we know that he's he's upholding the universe. He's watching over all of humanity. And, but you look at a passage like this, and you have to not only understand what's going on in the text, but you also got to, then you got to take back, zoom out, and kind of see how, how does this little text fit in with the larger scriptures, and what, 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 can, we, what can we learn from that in terms of, understanding the Lord and his ways and his calling upon our lives. So what I want to do, first of all, is to simply walk through the text, and then after that I want to zoom out and see how it relates to the Bible's bigger picture. So first of all, uh, we learn about Lot's new home in verse 30. It's, It's very interesting because the the, the angel had told Lot to escape to the hills, right, earlier in chapter 19, and, and Lot said, no, can't do that, let me escape to Zoar, and so the angel says, speaking on behalf of the Lord, the angel says, okay, go to Zoar, you'll be safe, and yet, Lot did not last very long in Zoar, he ended up going to the hills anyway, which is where the angels had told him to go in the first place. The reason that Lot left Zoar was because he was afraid. We're not told why he was afraid, but it, 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 just a little bit of uh, consideration of the context uh, makes it really understandable that Lot would have some profound reason for fear. I, I mean, just, just, just think about it. His home, where he had lived for at least the last 15 years, had been blown to smithereens. All property lost, uh, all, uh, all the people that he knew Uh, his neighbors and residents and servants and sons-in-law, they were consumed in the judgment. The entire valley had become a smoking furnace. His own wife had been pulverized because she had looked back in disobedience to the angel's instruction. And the smell of sulfur is probably still palpable in his nostrils. I mean, th- this, is a, this is an intense, traumatic, and overwhelming experience. If you, could, if you could imagine the Lord bringing catastrophic judgment upon Oxford, Paris, and Norway, completely wiped out, and only you and your two children have escaped off into some little hamlet a few miles away. And perhaps in that little hamlet, they even know that you are the only one who just escaped that massive judgment that just fell upon the area. I, I don't know about you, but I'd be pretty overwhelmed. I think I would want to leave that little hamlet and escape to the hills also. So, so uh, one, one commentator pointed out that Lot and his two daughters have basically been reduced to poverty. Yeah, I mean, you go back to a few chapters ago, Lot was, was, was fairly wealthy, you know, and then he separated from Abraham and moved into Sodom, and there he lived for many years, and now he's living in a cave in the hills. As we go to verses 31 to 35... Lot's daughters identify and address a valid concern in an improper manner. Their their, their concern is with the continuation of their father's line, their father's legacy through children. They want to see the, the, the family line continue into the future. There's no one around. I mean, there were a handful of people in Zoar, but basically all the people that they were interacting with have been completely wiped out. Uh, the daughters exaggerate, of course, when they say that there is not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth, but it's an understandable sentiment that, uh, that basically all the men that they knew are gone, and it seems pretty lonely out here in a cave in the hills just with their aged father. There's, 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 a, there's a limited time frame into which they can work things out to have offspring. So they, they concoct this plan uh, where they're going to get their father drunk, lay with their father, and have children... By him. And of course, that's exactly what they do. The, the firstborn goes first, then, then the youngest. Uh, I want to call attention to the fact that Lot bears some real responsibility here for what's going on. Okay? Uh, twice this passage says that Lot did not know when she lay down and, or when she arose. That's in verse. 33, and again in verse 35. So, in, in, in terms of the sexual act, Lot, Lot, Lot did not know what was going on, but he bears responsibility for getting himself in a state where he didn't know what was going on, okay? When, when, when we are told that his daughters, uh, you know, made him drunk, were, we're not to think that they, you know, force fed him wine against his will, Okay, Lot, Lot, Lot willingly drank to excess and got himself drunk. And, and, and by the way, this is why one of the problems with the sin of drunkenness is that we are called to be sober-minded and judicious at all times. When Lot was in a judicious frame of mind, uh, back in, earlier in chapter 19, he was able to say to the men who had gathered around his house, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. He, you know, he, he had his mind. But here, he, 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 he drank himself into being out of touch with reality, and he had no capacity to say to his daughters, no, my daughters, let us not act so wickedly. So we, 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 we bear responsibility for the sins that are offshoots of prior sins that we shouldn't have committed in the first place. Sin reaps additional sins. Lot also bears resp- some responsibility from another perspective, and that is that earlier in chapter 19, he was willing to sacrifice his daughter's purity and virginity by throwing them to the wicked men outside of their house, which means that he did not place a premium on the virginity and purity of his daughters. And so is it really all that surprising that they don't place a premium on it either, nor on his purity. But even though Lot bears responsibility uh, for what happens here, so do do his daughters. Their their misconduct is egregious. Uh, Nature itself teaches us that incest between a parent and child is unseemly. Genesis chapter 2 verse 24 is the first marriage text in the Bible and the very, the very logic of a man being united to a woman and having children sh- shows that it would be entirely inappropriate for one of the parents to have that kind of union with their offspring. Later scripture uh, in Leviticus chapter 18 clearly denounces a number of possible incestuous relationships. Furthermore, their, their, their misconduct here is not only the incest, but also that it is done with violence. And by violence, I, I, I mean that in the, in, the, in the technical sense of in violation of another's will. This was not a consensual act involving Lot, but they incapacitated him. They inebriated him so that they were able to do their bidding without his knowledge and therefore against his will. So they're not only guilty of incest, but, uh, but they undertake their plan with violence to Lot's will. Uh, w- w- uh, one, one commentator said that Sodom is reborn in this cave. And you can kind of see how how the the principles at work in the unruliness of Sodom are now also at work in Lot's daughters. Of course, even though incestuous unions are forbidden by the Lord, they can still be fruitful. Children can still come uh, from them, and that's exactly what happens as we look at verses 36 to 38 as we see that two nations are born of course two two sons but then those sons become the father uh, the fathers of nations it says in verse 36 that both of Lot's daughters became pregnant and then in verse 37 that the firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab Moab is a play on words Moab in, in the Hebrew Moab sounds like the phrase from our father, that occurred in verse 32 and uh, in in verse 34. So Moab sounds like from our father. And then the younger bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami, which means son of my people. Now, if you know the Old Testament, then you know that Moab and Ammon, the Moabites and the Ammonites, receive a lot of attention throughout the Old Testament. And that surely is one reason why this, this uh, account is told us here in Genesis chapter 19, because uh, there's going to be over 150 references to the Moabites after Genesis chapter 19 in the Old Testament. There's going to be over 100 references to the Ammonites. They, they, they became neighbors of Israel. They were Israel's eastern neighbors and they were often unfriendly and caused trouble to Israel and here we learn of their origins so that's that's kind of a, a, a brief walkthrough of the text now I want to zoom out and kind of see how does it fit into the larger context of scripture and I want to begin with f- five, five, uh, five observations uh, from from the from the larger context of scripture okay first although what lot's daughters do is a grave sin we should understand that there's a, there's there is a lot of sexual sin in the book of Genesis this this is one of the this is one of the great tragedies of our sinfulness as human beings is that we, we, we take the, the precious gift of marriage and sex, sexuality and children, and we prove, to, we prove to mishandle those good gifts. I mean, just, just, just think of Sarah giving her maidservant virtually as a second wife to her husband. Sarah giving Hagar to Abraham and Abraham consenting to it. Or later on, we we will read about Laban. Laban tricks Jacob, and Jacob expects to marry Rachel, and instead uh, Laban slips in his oldest daughter, Leah. And then later, Jacob marries Rachel. And then there's competition for children, and Leah and Rachel are giving their maidservants to Jacob to get more children. I mean, this is really messed up stuff. Jacob's son Judah will uh, sleep with a prostitute who happens to be his daughter-in-law. So all I want you to see is, is that Lot's daughters are not uniquely occupying the moral low ground. There are many others who share with them that low ground. Indeed, to one degree or another, all of us are sexual sinners in need of the Lord's redeeming grace. The the second thing I want to call your attention to is that the Moabites and the Ammonites are part of Israel's extended family. If you just started reading the Bible in the middle of the Old Testament, you might miss this. But this is is important to understand. I mean, ultimately, of course, all human beings, uh, we trace back to Noah and Noah's three sons, or even back further to Adam and Eve in a very real sense, we're all extended family, but, but some, some parts of the human race are more closely connected to than others, and we certainly see that here, because in Genesis chapter 11, we met Terah. Terah was the father of Abraham, Nahor, and Haran, okay? Uh, Lot was Haran's son, which means that Lot was Abraham's nephew, but if you just, if you just trace it out, Terah had Abraham, and Haran, Abraham will have Isaac in chapter 21, and Haran had Lot. So even though there's an age gap, Isaac and Lot are first cousins. And that means that Jacob and Esau and Moab and ben Ammi are second cousins. So, so, so I just want you to see, this is all, this is all part of the uh, same extended family here. The Moabites and the Ammonites are not far away foreigners, But near kin, next door neighbors who can all trace their ancestry to Terah. The the third observation I want to make is this, even though the nations of Moab and Ammon were conceived in incest, they were still within the scope of God's providential oversight and care. God pays attention to them and treats them as morally, morally responsible agents and, and, and calls them to account for their sin. Uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 2, the Lord told the Israelites to walk in peace toward the Moabites and the Ammonites when the Israelites passed through their lands. Moses wrote, and we turned and went in the direction of the wilderness of Moab. This is Deuteronomy 2.8. And the Lord said to me, do not harass Moab or contend with them in battle for I will not give you any of their land for a possession because I have given R, Ar, capital A-R, I have given R to the people of Lot for a possession. And then several verses later Moses wrote, Deuteronomy 2.17, The Lord said to me, today you are to cross the border of Moab at R and when you approach the territory of the people of Ammon, Do not harass them or contend with them, for I will not give you any of the land of the people of Ammon as a possession, because I have given it to the sons of Lot for a possession. These passages make it clear that the Lord himself gave land to both the nation of Moab and to the nation of Ammon. Although they were not the Lord's chosen people in the special way that Israel was, nevertheless, they were included within the scope of God's providential care. And you also are included within the scope of God's providential care, regardless of what your background may be. Further, although Moab and Ammon were part of Israel's extended family, they proved to be unfriendly toward Israel. And as a result, God held the Moabites accountable the Moabites and the Ammonites, accountable for their unfriendliness and their wickedness toward Israel. Deuteronomy chapter 23 verses 3 to 6 says, no Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord. Even to the 10th generation, none of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever. Why? Because they did not meet you with bread and with water on the way when you came out of Egypt and because they hired against you Balaam, the son of Baor, from Pathor of Mesopotamia, to curse you. But the Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing for you because the Lord your God loved you. You shall not seek their peace or their prosperity all your days forever. Deuteronomy 23, verses 3-6. to Note well that this harsh judgment on the Ammonites and the Moabites is not on account of their ethnicity or their origins. Instead, the judgment was given precisely because the Ammonites and Moabites were morally significant human beings who were inhospitable to the Israelites and who then sought to bring a curse upon the Israelites. The problem with human beings, it's never our physical or genetic makeup but it is the corruption of our hearts and the sinful deeds that flow out of our corrupt hearts. And perhaps there's someone here this morning who needs to hear this, that whatever your background, whatever your backstory, however it came about that you were conceived, incest, rape, adultery, out of wedlock, or were unwanted all of that it's those are part of the heartbreaks of living in a fallen world but it doesn't change the fact that you are an image bearer of God God takes you seriously as an image bearer who is morally accountable to him he calls you to trust in him and to follow after him and he will hold you accountable if you don't let's go to the fourth observation Although the Moabites and the Ammonites both fell under the judgment of God because of their sin, nevertheless, the Lord promised to bring future blessing upon them. I'll show you the, the text uh, momentarily, but this reminds us of Genesis 12:3 and God's plan to bring blessing through Abraham to all the families of the earth. And this is really important. Moab and. Ammon, are not excluded from the Lord's intention to bring blessings to the nations through Abraham. In Genesis, uh, not, not Genesis, in Jeremiah chapters 46 to 51, the prophet Jeremiah proclaims the Lord's judgment on several nations, including Egypt, the Philistines, Moab, Ammon, Edom, Damascus, Kadar and Hazor, Elam, and Babylon. But even though the the predominant tone of these passages is destruction, occasionally the Lord slips in a word of promise that though these nations are now under judgment, blessings shall come upon them in future days. At the end of the section on Moab, the Lord says in Jeremiah 48, 47, Yet I will restore the fortunes of Moab in the latter days, declares the Lord. And at the end of the section on Ammon, the Lord says, but afterward I will restore the fortunes of the Ammonites, declares the Lord, Jeremiah nine six. Although sin has corrupted every branch of humanity's large family tree, the Lord extends his grace just as far, and so there shall be a remnant of Moabites and a remnant of Ammonites, who will join us in worshiping before the throne of God forever and ever. And among them is Ruth, the Moabite woman. And that brings me to my fifth observation. Do you, it has to do with that special genealogical line of seed sons that we've been tracing through the book of Genesis. You know how important we keep coming back to that, right? God has promised that the seed of the woman shall eventually come to crush the head of the serpent. And so we've been tracing this line from Adam through Seth to Noah, from Noah through Shem to Abraham, from Abraham through Isaac and down to Jacob and Joseph and, uh, uh, not Joseph, uh, Judah, Judah, and eventually we'll get to King David, um, And so in this regard, it's really worth pointing out that there is at least one Moabite woman and one Ammonite woman who are actually included in this special genealogical line that will ultimately lead to the Messiah. Matthew chapter 1 traces the genealogical line from Abraham to the Messiah, and in the first third of the genealogy, we are told that Boaz was the father of Obed, by Ruth, Matthew 1.5. Boaz and Ruth were the great-grandparents of King David. And we know from the book that bears Ruth's name that Ruth was a Moabite woman. And without getting into all the details, she eventually took refuge under the God of Israel and married Boaz, a man from the tribe of Judah, and their offspring continued the Messianic line. Returning to Matthew chapter 1, two verses uh, later... After the part about Boaz and Ruth, we are told that Solomon was the father of Rehoboam, Matthew 1.7. Now, Matthew doesn't tell us anything about the woman by whom Solomon fathered Rehoboam, but 1 Kings 14 does. And 1 Kings 14 verse 21 says, Now Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, reigned in Judah. Rehoboam was 41 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 17 years in Jerusalem, the city that the Lord had chosen out of all the tribes of Israel to put his name there. His mother's name was Naamah the Ammonite. 1 Kings 4, 21. R- Ruth was a true believer in the God of Israel. Perhaps Naamah never became a true believer. Perhaps Solomon should have never married her in the first place. But, but the fact of the matter is, is that Ruth the Moabite and naamah the Ammonite are both included in the genealogical line leading to Messiah. The presence of a Moabite and an Ammonite in that special line is not a testimony to the fact that the Moabites and Ammonites are great and mighty and worthy of that honor. That's not the point. The point is that their presence is is a testimony to the fact that the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is a gracious God whose mercy extends to all peoples and He is not put off by someone's ancestry. God so loved the world, Jews and Gentiles, all sinners and all kinds of sinners. God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whosoever would believe in him, would not perish, but have everlasting life. And so now God commands all people everywhere to put their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and become part of his forever family. I hope that these wide-angle, wide-lens wide views of how Genesis 19, 30-38 fits with the Bible's big picture illustrates how, that all scriptural passages Though some at first glance may seem like a small and unrelated piece of a very large puzzle, really, every passage is part of a beautiful tapestry that reveals the glories of our Lord's righteousness and the wonders of His bountiful grace. Last but not least, I think it's very important to point out how God chooses to highlight the beauty of his son's entrance into our world. Think about this. When Sarah wanted to build up her house with children, she concocted a plan to do it by giving her, servant, her, her maid servant Hagar to Abraham and thus Abraham fathered Ishmael by Hagar. So what surrounds the conception of Ishmael is unbelief the unwillingness to wait patiently on the Lord, and moral compromise. Ishmael comes about as the fruit of human effort to secure the future through human strength and human wisdom. And the very activities involved are morally bankrupt. When Lot's daughters wanted to build up their house and continue their family line, they concocted a plan by leading their father into drunkenness and then coupling with their father. And thus Lot fathered Moab and Ben Ammi by his daughters. So, what surrounds the conception of Moab is unbelief, the unwillingness to wait patiently on the Lord's wisdom and the Lord's provision and moral compromise. Moab and Ben Ammi come about as the fruit of human effort to secure the fu- future through human strength and human wisdom, and the very activities involved are morally bankrupt. It's, 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 it's The Tower of Babel all over again played out in little families where we're trying to build up something. What we need is divine grace to come down. And when God sent his beloved son into this world by being conceived in and born of a woman, God did it in a beautiful way. God saw to it that there was no plotting and scheming by any human being. It is completely outside the scope of human possibilities to bring about the conception, the human conception of God's eternal son. If the Lord of glory was to be conceived in a a woman's womb, it must necessarily be the work of God and not the work of any man. If God's son was to become a man, it must happen as a free and self-giving act of God's spectacular grace. And not as the result of any plotting or conniving by a woman attempting to build her house on her own terms. None of that. The incarnation of the Holy One will happen by the grace and power of God and no thank you to any human being. So, when the appointed time of our Lord's coming drew near, God saw to it that the whole thing was enveloped in beauty and purity. contrast that with Lot and Lot's daughters, with Sarah and Hagar. This is God's initiative, not Mary's. This is God's promise, not Mary's plan to make something happen. This is God's gracious favor, not Mary's anxious striving. This is God's eternal purpose, not Mary's temporal concerns. This is God's power, not Mary's ability. This is God's strength freely exercised without the instrumentality of any man. In this holy place, there is not a whiff of impurity. God saw to it that the woman chosen for this holy task was characterized by a humble and obedient faith. Very soon, Mary will lift up her voice and praise. My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior for He has looked on the humble estate of His servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed for He who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is His name. The answer to the moral ugliness of Genesis chapter 19, verses 30 to 38, which is in fact only a picture of the moral ugliness of sinful humanity in general. The answer to this moral ugliness is the holiness of God's Son and the humility and faith and obedience that surround the divinely orchestrated conception of God's Son in Mary's womb testify to the beauty and righteousness of the incarnate Word. From here, God's light goes forth to bring salvation, peace, and eternal life to all who call upon His name. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Genesis chapter 19, verses 30 to 38. And we thank you that it is not the last word, but that there is grace for sinners through the Lord Jesus Christ, who for us and for our salvation came down from heaven and became a man, and in his flesh suffered, and died for our sins. I pray that you would give us eyes to see the beauty and the purity and the holiness and the righteousness of your beloved Son in whose name we pray. Amen.